and the benefit of community sponsorship, which has existed in this country for decades, is that everyday people come together to help directly welcome refugees or help resettle them, actually. And what that also shows is that not only is there welcome in the community, but also it says to our elected officials that we as people care so much about this, we're willing to put down what I call our diamond time. This is Sarah Stewart-Holland. And this is Beth Silvers. Thank you for joining us for Pantsuit Politics. so much for joining us for a new episode. Today, we are thinking about the state of the pandemic because a year ago, the first vaccine was authorized on an emergency basis by the FDA. I'm having trouble with time, but I'm sure we'll get into that in this episode. Today is also Global Human Rights Day. So we invited Denise Bell of Amnesty International to talk with us about the status of refugees all over the world, different legal obstacles to welcoming people who are leaving difficult situations, and what we can do personally to be of assistance to folks who are fleeing terrible circumstances. And then outside of politics, because it is the end of the year, we're very calendar driven here today. We're going to talk about our approach to charitable giving. Before we get started, we've had some deep and spicy conversations this week with Pantsuit Politics Premium members. So just a reminder that you can check out our premium podcast for free for two weeks on Apple Podcast subscription. And we'll put the link in the show notes and would love for you to join us there. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is, I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth, it makes it feel special makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less, no thawing required. You can fully customize your Wild Grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Do you want a bra that's sexy? or a bra that's comfortable. Thanks to 3rd Love, you can have both. 3rd Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. Sarah, it's hard to believe, but Saturday, December 11th, Wow, we got the authorization for the Pfizer vaccines to roll out on an emergency basis. When I look back over this past year, it kind of makes me sad how quickly vaccines went from being like this miracle to solution to just being another problem to deal with, right? Like it became 
getting people vaccinated. Oh, well, gosh, now we're just never going to get everybody vaccinated and getting people and we don't have enough. And then the waits were long. And how do you get an appointment? And now, well, now that people who want it have gotten it, now the people we have to get the people who don't want it vaccinated. And it just makes me it kind of makes me sad. You know how defensive I am of this technology. I love it so much. And it makes me sad that we don't spend enough time thinking like this is amazing. This vaccine is amazing. No less now than it was a year ago. And I just don't feel like we stood in that space for long enough or, you know, even continue now to take moments to remember, like, yes, it is a struggle to get people to the clinics and the doctor's office to get the vaccine. But we cannot lose sight of the fact that the vaccine itself is a miracle. I think that's so well said and reflective of how we're always at 100 or zero. Mm-hmm. In our discussion of anything, like the vaccine can only be a miracle if everyone gets it, if it's 100 percent infallible, mm-hmm. if there are no breakthrough cases. You know what I mean? It's a it's an amazing thing that science offered us. In another timeline, we could, with every new variant, be back to lockdown, Ugh. serious restriction on activity enormous death numbers or just be like 60 percent protected against severe disease or hospitalization right so it is a really wonderful thing and it can be a wonderful thing even if it's just one step in a process Mm -hmm. you know one step forward instead of all the way to COVID is over and I think that maybe some of our inability to really celebrate the vaccine is that it is combined with enormous griefs because even with this miracle, a lot has been lost. And I think there is a grief around coming to grips with the fact that it, there isn't a COVID is over. I mean, that, yeah. there's, a, there's a grief there. We haven't experienced well, a lot like that, at least in, you know, we're 40. We haven't experienced a lot in our lifetime where something horrible happens and then it's not really over. The fact that we didn't stand long enough in the position of like this vaccine is a miracle means that we also didn't celebrate that a certain phase of COVID was over. It was over. We will not go back to lockdowns. Right. And there was so there was so often, especially when Biden was elected, that you get these like like bubbling up on Facebook. I keep meaning to go back and search down a lot. A couple of them of my friends who posted like he's going to just watch it's happening. They're going to lock us down and be like, hey, remember when you said this and it was wrong? just wanted to remind you that that didn't happen because there there is a certain aspect of the pandemic that was over on December 11th of last year. When we got vaccines, life changed. Now, it did not return to 2019, but that does not mean that it didn't change. I feel very different. I live differently now that there is a vaccine. COVID does not live rent free in my head the way it did before there were vaccines. You know, I, I trust the technology. Once it was out there, I felt like Things were different. It, I don't have the anxiety I used to have moving about in the world and feeling like it was just like everywhere waiting to get me. I just don't. It's not that I'm not worried about breakthrough cases. It's not like, especially before my kids were vaccinated, I didn't have some concerns or anxiety, but it was different. It felt very different than March 2020 where I was sitting in my living room thinking like, is is every single one of my family members going to make it through this? Like, it's it's different than that. It feels different. And I just... Just because there's the presence of some fear and some anxiety and we're not back to 2019 like a light switch doesn't mean that we can't see that we have exited a phase that is forever behind us now because of the presence of these vaccines. So let's think about where we are right now with some numbers, recognizing, first of all, that none of these numbers are perfect. There are a lot of questions about data gathering. It is miraculous that people are able to get two shots of the vaccine and anyone keeps track of that. But it is difficult, especially if you've gone to different providers. It's hard for any data collector to know whether you're on your first shot or your second or your booster. Um, So these numbers aren't perfect. But in the United States, we know that about 476 million doses of the vaccine have been given. That's about 199 million people or 60 percent of the population that's fully vaccinated worldwide, about 8.31 billion doses have been given. 55.4-ish percentage of the world population has gotten at least one dose of a COVID vaccine. This number really blew me away. 31.49 million doses are administered every day worldwide. So that's what we know about the vaccine and where we stand with that. 
in the United States as far as the virus itself. Delta strain is still the dominant strain of COVID in the United States. We're still gathering lots of data about Omicron. Early data from South Africa indicates that it could cause milder disease than previous variants. There was a really good article in The Atlantic that's, that talked about like a super contagious but milder variant is good news because it means that it burns out quickly. That's sort of what happened with the 1918 flu pandemic. We're getting more data as well surrounding the vaccines and how they hold up to these variants. Pfizer announced preliminary results of a study showing that the original two doses still protect against severe disease from the Omicron variant, but not infection. And booster shots confer stronger immunity. Probably not surprising. I don't think it's long before we stop talking about the booster shot as a booster shot and start talking about it as a third dose. Right now, we're averaging 120,000 new COVID cases per day and still 1,300 deaths per day. We will pass 800,000 total deaths before Christmas. Just in the United States. Just in the United States. And I think it's likely that we'll get to 1 million deaths, which is so insane to think about. I just remember those press conferences where you could just see it on the Trump administration's faces. Like they were terrified to use numbers like 500,000 or 300,000 or 200,000. And now here we are creeping close to a million people. And I think that gets to that sense that something that has inflicted that much death just doesn't end Mm -hmm. phases of it end you're right seasons of it end but the impact of that doesn't end and while i agree with you i am making decisions differently because of vaccines especially now that both of my girls have Mm -hmm. both doses there are places where hospital capacity like some of those metrics that we've been focused on from the beginning are trending in bad directions in maine and new york and new hampshire governors have asked the national guard for help the national guard's roles in these situations are so wide-ranging they help with food service they help with administrative tasks we're going to have someone from the national guard on the podcast in january to talk about all the things the national guard does because it's really amazing but They are helping with low capacity and medical facilities in some of those New England states. Governor Sununu in New Hampshire has also asked FEMA to help get ready in New Hampshire for an anticipated winter surge. There's some writing going on about when we combine flu and the Delta strain, which is, as you said, our dominant strain right now and and a possible Omicron. Like it, it could get really tough in the next couple of months. Well, and with the surges, I think that is an area that I'm constantly reminded we still don't understand. We tell ourselves, oh, it's about winter and people going indoors, or, but we don't really understand what causes these surges. And I think that's the other thing that can feel so discouraging or like we're stuck because, you, you know, even after all this time and all this data, there are still aspects of COVID that we do not understand. And at the same time, we have... A lot of optimism about 2022 because the vaccines, there are real conversations among scientists about creating a vaccine that could handle all strains of coronavirus. J.P. Morgan Chase Global Research has forecasted a full global economic recovery in 2022, viewing it as the end of the global pandemic and a return to normal conditions we had prior to the COVID-19 outbreak. Go tell it on the mountain, J.P. Morgan Chase. I love that. I mean, I like that, too. It seems a little narrow in its assessment of what constitutes a return to normal, but good for them. (laughs) I was thinking about this morning the culture war aspect of the vaccines And how the pandemic is almost another illustration of this argument that we keep having in U.S. politics about minority rule, Mm. because you have the majority of Americans getting vaccinated. Yeah. You even have the majority of Americans favoring vaccine mandates in a whole variety of contexts. But a vocal minority of Americans just don't want that. and. Nature demands a consensus on vaccines for us to really be able to move out of this being a major part of our lives, you know. And I don't know, it's just kind of got me thinking about what we can learn from that. And and I don't want to ignore, you know, every time we talk about people who are not getting vaccinated, we get a lot of notes about folks who have actually been advised by 
physicians that in their specific cases, getting vaccinated is not a good idea. I do not mean to marginalize or ignore that group of people. It is statistically small, but humanly significant. So so please don't hear me lumping together all people and all reasons. I've just been thinking about whatever the reason, you know, 60-40 is helpful. It's progress. It's miraculous in a lot of ways. And it doesn't do what is needed to really put this topic on the back burner. And and people just are so angry about that. And I think it's reflective of many, many dynamics in our population. I hope a year out from the vaccine, in this sort of new phase, which to me has revealed even more the kind of multi-layered, branching out journey we're on in this pandemic. Like there isn't one pandemic in a way, right? It's the experience is so different based on where you live, based on your life experiences, your health background. We talk about it in a way as if it's one thing. And especially with the presence of the vaccines, like it just stopped being one thing, right? If it ever was, which I'm not sure that it that it ever was. And I think like once you release that and you realize like there's just a <laughs> there is a lot going on. There's a lot of decision points from, you know, the pharmaceutical companies who hold the vaccines to the federal government, state government, local authorities, public school, hospitals, Individual families, individual companies, corporations, social gatherings, church congregations. Like I literally could list all the different decision points that exist inside this pandemic for all of us. And I think that's the exhaustion right now more than anything, because we just keep layering on more sort of decision points. Okay, well, what about the booster? Well, what about these viral treatment pills. Well, what about if you're at a gathering with the unvaccinated? Okay, well, what if you have a breakthrough case? How long should your isolation period be? Like, just the complexity is going to continue to grow in this sort of paradoxical manner as we're exiting, right? (laughs) Like, the exit itself is creating the complexity. That's hard to hold, and it's taxing. It's taxing When you have a lot of resources, it's certainly taxing when you don't and when you're, you know, run down or stressed from all the burdens this pandemic has created, depending on where you are in your life. And I think that's what we're feeling. I think that's why, you know, Biden's poll numbers aren't budging is because it just feels like the complexity increases We want out. We want somebody to just tell us a simple message. But I'm not sure that that's available to us right now. I think, you know, all of our the flow chart for every single human being surrounding their choices at this point is getting pretty long. And then trying to combine those in any way, shape or form to, to offer some sort of universal guidance. I think you see the the administration struggling with that. Throughout the pandemic, a policy problem we've had is someone saying very plainly, there are lots of things we could prioritize. There are lots of directions we could go in our management of this. We're going to pick this one because we have to pick. And I really need that from the Biden administration right now. Uh, Because how I would prioritize it does not matter. These are still communal tasks. So I really need the administration not to say we're going to have this multi-pronged approach with the vaccine push and the testing push and the community outreach and the development. of the, I, I just I would like to hear here is the main thing. This is the main number we're watching. You know, this is the main I, I get that we need a lot of tools in our toolkit still, but I just want to understand when I see Cases are going up. I don't know what to make of that. I don't know if I make Mm of that. Oh, okay, good. We are getting to that more transmissible, but much milder going to burnout phase. 
Or are we concerned about that? I don't know how to hold more transmissible, milder infection alongside governor of Maine has to bring in the National Guard to help at the hospital. And I just need a clear articulation of what is being prioritized on a national scale. I feel like that's not forthcoming. Yeah, I just don't know what that would be. I just don't know what that would be. And I think when they they are learning, you know, whether for good or for ill, that when they prioritize one thing in a pandemic that for better or for worse, even with the power of the federal government behind you, you can't control, and that one thing doesn't happen, they suffer mightily for it. You know, like sort of declaring our independence in July. Then we got the Delta variant. Like, I can't blame them for being a little gun shy about setting some like hard numbers in front of the American people in the middle of a pandemic that's like... That is so uncontrollable in so many ways. If it's okay, I wanted to mention one personal thing before we leave this topic. As many of you know, my mom got COVID back in September of 2020. And this community was just generous. Generous is not enough of a word to describe how you all responded to a really serious, scary time for my family. And I just wanted to give you a little update on her. She saw a doctor yesterday. Uh, to check in. And she has continued to really struggle. She has had another surgery since then to deal with um, degeneration of her spine that happened, they think, because of COVID-related inflammation. And uh, looking at her x-rays, her normal doctor was um, out and the doctor subbing in for him looked at her x-rays and was blown away by what she is still dealing with. And the consensus among the the folks who work with her is just that COVID has dramatically accelerated her rheumatoid arthritis. Mm. And they don't know how long that will last, if it will retreat, or if that's just going to be part of her condition. But I mention it because, again, like there, I am still working to hold on to what is over, which is my fear that we would lose her to COVID versus what is not over. And that's the suffering that she is still dealing with and the unknown of whether that long piece can be over or not. And that's a a teeny tiny example from one incredibly lucky family on the whole of how hard all of this is. And I just am really grateful that my mom allows me to share that because I've heard from so many of you that it's helpful, you know, where you have stories of grief or long haul symptoms or whatever it is. I just I want you to know that whenever Sarah and I are expressing optimism, uh, it is not an optimism that intends to ignore or minimize the the very mm-hmm. real things that that continue to be awful. I think that's a good transition into our conversation about refugees, that there is cause for optimism in the face of a really, really difficult reality. So we were so thrilled that Denise agreed to join us, and we hope you enjoy this conversation. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and June has you covered. We've talked about Olive and June's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are going to last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and June also has press-ons if you want. What I love though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsu for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? 
Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to d-i-p-s-e-a stories.com slash pantsuit. dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college, y'all. He's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things. Big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash pantsy. Today is Global Human Rights Day. We have talked about refugees and asylum seekers from around the world a lot this year. Today, we wanted to take a step back and think about this on a more big picture level. So we called in an expert. Denise Bell from Amnesty International is here to talk us through what the global picture around refugees and asylum seekers looks like. Okay, before we start, what is a refugee? A refugee is a person who is forced to flee their country because of persecution, because of a fear for their life, because of war. There's a legal definition that is part of the refugee convention, but most people understand a refugee is what we think, somebody who's forced to flee their home because they fear for their lives and the lives of their families. And before we got too far into that conversation, I realized I didn't really understand the difference between a refugee and an asylum seeker. A refugee in the classic sense of a refugee is that you're somebody who's abroad who's been granted refugee status. An asylum seeker is a refugee who comes directly to the border and asks for protection. And so, for example, Syrians who are resettled, they were granted refugee status abroad and then they were resettled here. However, a Syrian asylum seeker is somebody who came directly to the United States and asked for asylum. And then the determination is made here in the United States whether to give them refugee status. You know, I find myself often thinking about human rights as something for vulnerable populations who are already at risk. And that is true. Denise reminded us, though, that human rights are internationally assured under law for everyone. It is not something that we should be aspiring to. It is something that we have all agreed is important. Well, first, there's a human rights framework, and that's how we approach all of our work. There is an obligation to principal human rights obligations. The first is the right to seek asylum, which is in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and also the Refugee Convention. And then the principle of non-refoulement, which is a non-derogable human rights obligation for all countries in the world, that a person cannot be returned to a country where they face a risk of serious human rights abuses. So we don't come in through a vulnerability lens. We come in through a human rights framework. And so all people have the right to ask for asylum. And no person should be returned to a country where they will face serious human rights harm, including torture. 
And I think that legal framework is so important because the heartbreaking stories of refugees move us all. But the reality is that having a terrible story isn't enough to classify someone as a refugee because it's a legal claim and classification. And this really complicates our processes around resettlement. It complicates our discussion about immigration in the United Mm -hmm, States, too, mm -hmm. because we use refugee in ways that are not attached at all to the legal claim. And sometimes we have people who are very dismissive of people who've arrived at our border who do have a legal claim as a refugee to be here. It would help us a lot if we would introduce a humanitarian visa Mm -hmm. in the United States. We do not have that at this time. There are models for us in Europe that we could follow. Adding a humanitarian visa classification would require an act of Congress. We know that that's a little bit tricky all days and especially these days. Because Congress hasn't done that, the legal role of processing and establishing refugees has fallen to the executive branch which holds the power to set the number of refugees, just an actual number that we'll admit each year. And that number keeps seesawing with administrations. In the last year of the Obama administration, we admitted 85,000 refugees. And um, the last year of the Trump administration, I think it was 8,000 or 10,000 refugees. This year, it was 11,000, the first year of the Biden administration. In part, I mean, we all wanted much more, but in part, they were rebuilding a system that just didn't exist. They could have done, I would say, more and faster. (laughs) But the fact is, they were not going to get from zero to 85 or 10,000 to 85 because the infrastructure had been shut down. So we have the capacity to welcome and we have the will to welcome. There are a lot of political impediments that have been set up to block welcome, particularly under the previous administration that dismantled the asylum system and the system for resettling refugees. So in a very real sense, the current administration is rebuilding a system of protection that was decimated. And we, we have to acknowledge that when you're rebuilding something like a house that burned down <laughs> at the same time you're trying to live in the house, it's difficult. And that's where we are. However, we also need to make sure that the administration understands they need to do better and they need to do more and they need to do it faster. This is an important moment to remember that refugees are the most vetted immigrants to enter the country. No other immigrant who comes into the United States has as intense a background check as a refugee. Multiple federal agencies, including intelligence agencies, pour over people's backgrounds before they are approved for resettlement here. It's part of what makes this process so long and why restarting the administrative engine of welcoming refugees is such an arduous process. That administrative engine has been harmed over the past Mm -hmm. few years, like many other aspects of the executive branch, because you had an administration in charge in the Trump administration that really did not believe we should be welcoming many people throughout the world into the country. And getting that running again and running at a time when we have lots of people who need to be brought into the United States has been really complicated. That's part of the discussion that you've seen surrounding our withdrawal from Afghanistan. And we're talking right now specifically about America. You know, the issue of refugee resettlement or handling asylum claims is not exclusive to America at all. If you are listening in Europe, you know what a challenge this is. In America, when we think specifically about refugees, the majority of those people are coming from Africa, South Asia, or Western Asia, where we see massive conflict and where our legal definition of refugee often applies. We have had conversations here on the show about refugees coming from Haiti, and Haiti is an example of how the legal classification between refugee status and asylum seeker status gets complicated. Haiti is not considered a refugee-producing country. Perhaps it should, and that's because, again, refugee is a legal definition. However, people who leave Haiti have the right to ask for asylum. Well, and I think this is just a good reminder that We are talking about a legal process, but the legal process is not immune from human reality. There's some anti-Black racism at work in the system when we talk about Haitians' exclusion from this process. 
there are broader definitions of refugee. You know, the Refugee Convention is the standard, and Haitians would qualify under some of these other broader definitions. Not to mention that we're excluding people from natural disasters or where economic reasons are not qualifiers. Where governments are unwilling or unable to protect people, that factors into the asylum claim. But every single one of these factors is subject to a whole body of case law interpreting them. And I think that we need to look at how we talk about refugees in the modern era, because a lot of these definitions are really dated. You know, we said just a second ago that natural disasters don't qualify you for refugee status and climate refugees are on the rise. So we asked Denise to talk to us about how climate change affects the refugee population and how our legal definition currently thinks of people who are fleeing because of natural disasters. So a person who is displaced because of climate is called a climate displaced person. They might qualify for refugee status. Again, that is a legal definition under the Refugee Convention, which the United States adopted in 1980 in the Refugee Act of 1980. So that's very important for um, people to understand. Yes, this is international human rights law. This is international law, but it's also U.S. law. And there is a legal definition of refugee as a person who's persecuted on account of um, one of five protected grounds. Climate is not one of them. However, people can be persecuted because of climate, what we call climate impacts. And so, for example, and the UN Refugee Agency has agreed with this. So there is capacity to make sure that we give protection to people who are affected this way. So for example, somebody who is a climate justice advocate in their country who might be persecuted because of that by their government, or if a government withholds humanitarian aid to a section of the country because of their ethnic background, and they needed that aid because of climate change impacts, like a natural disaster of some sort, those could rise to the level of persecution on a protected ground. And so we have to be thinking creatively, yes, but also it's still very much within the legal definition, which the UN Refugee Agency has started to recognize. And at this point, you might be thinking, Lord, this is huge and complex and something I don't have much hope for impacting as a single person. But there is actually a lot you can do to help welcome refugees in the United States. Of course, there are the obvious things like contacting representatives and letting them know that you want to see more refugees inside our country and you have support in place for them. But you can also find local organizations helping with the refugee resettlement process and volunteer with them. But there are also individual options available through our legal system to help resettle refugees. The United States has a history of being a beacon of hope. And that came because we wanted to be that, because we see ourselves that way, because we did do the welcoming. And we can do that again. As we rebuild our system, absolutely. But the American people, for example, can come together through community sponsorship and they can actually show how they want to be welcomers. And the benefit of community sponsorship, which has existed in this country for decades, is that everyday people come together to help directly welcome refugees or help resettle them, actually. And what that also shows is that not only is there welcome in the community, but also it says to our elected officials that we as people care so much about this, we're willing to put down what I call our diamond time. So community sponsorship has existed since the 1980s, and co-sponsorship is the form that many community members have been engaged in. And there you work with resettlement agencies and you share responsibilities for helping to resettle refugees. Sponsor circles are brand new because they operate outside the resettlement agency infrastructure. And so community members come together and work directly. I call it community-based resettlement. And so exactly, they are coming together to directly resettle refugees. I would just say that it's actually not private sponsorship. It's private sponsorship-like. Um, There will be a private sponsorship program launched next year by the administration. Actually, the president, in an executive order signed on February 4th, said it was coming. So this is really thrilling. We're taking these innovative steps um, to welcome refugees. So this is a step to get there. Sponsor circles are meeting an acute need, 
and that's to mobilize the public to help in the resettlement of Afghans on the military bases. Getting involved in this process makes a big difference. Community support is how people are connected to a community. It is a huge part of what makes a successful transition for refugees. And I think this part of the conversation really gets left behind in immigration discussions in the United States. And I think more of us participating as community support for refugees could help us change that immigration conversation because it really does build out a social network. Denise describes this very beautifully. A good outcome for the refugee family is that they feel fully welcomed and integrated and are able to support themselves and have all of the social services and support networks that they would need like any of us would need to thrive. It's also what it means is that the community comes together and is stronger for this. What we find is refugees return as much or more than Americans in terms of taxpayer dollars. They are a highly productive member of society once they have resettled and found housing and found jobs and um, have started to rebuild their lives. The other part of refugee resettlement that's really important is that it does help with community cohesion. It helps brings communities together um, because they feel jobs that um, are vacant because other people have left. A number of mayors across the country have talked about how their cities were really seeing a decline and then refugees helped the economy, local economy bounce back. Um, the National Meatpacking Association works closely with refugee communities, have enabled them to have regular and early employment in their um, resettlement. But I would say it's that sense of belonging. That sense of belonging benefits us all. I love her emphasis on belonging. I love the way that she's taken us from this sort of legal understanding and then shown how our values can also inform our policies and that. In the United States, we have hard history surrounding refugees, but we also have hopeful history surrounding refugees. And I am excited about this new policy. I'm hoping to participate with it in my own community. And I think it's a really beautiful note to end on. The U.S. has been a leader in refugee protection. And we just launched one of the most innovative programs in 40 years the sponsor circles. So we have the ability, we have the commitment, we have the vision to do it. But people need to make sure that their elected officials understand that we want to welcome, that this is part of our values and what we want, and that it is U.S. law. No person is illegal. All people can seek asylum. And we have to make sure that not only our neighbors understand, but our elected officials understand. It's what we care about, and it's U.S. law, it's human rights law, and it's the right thing to do. We are really grateful to Denise for spending time with us. We will put all of her contact information in our show notes. She has since transitioned from amnesty to an effort more specifically focused on welcoming Afghan refugees into the United States. So if you want to connect with her, her information will be in the show notes. And we really appreciate her and all of you spending time with us thinking about the big picture of this conversation. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, And Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, 
It could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code Pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. Sarah, it is uh, the time of year when motivated partially by uh, holiday cheer and partially by U.S. tax law. Many of us are thinking about charitable giving. And we had this conversation. I think it was Elise's idea to chat about how we approach that this time of year, how we make decisions about our philanthropic giving. Well, last year's Pantsuit Politics, we talked about this and we decided to sort of divide the money and put it in our local communities. I definitely like to give money locally, although I am considering some national abortion rights nonprofits this year as the calendar year rolls to an end. But I think very, very appropriately regarding our conversation in the previous segment, I think I'm going to use a large majority of our the money we set aside for charitable giving to work on a sponsorship circle with some people in my community, which is it's like ten thousand dollars. It costs a lot of money to fundraise and and bring a family here and and hopefully be able to provide a place for them here in Paducah. So, so the 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 short answer is, however I'm feeling that year, <laughs> whatever is pulling on my heartstrings and whatever, if I know about some need in my community, I think that's a good answer. I am taking the same approach that I took last year, which is also locally based and where I see my dollars going to root causes. I've Mm -hmm. been thinking so much about what is the role of philanthropy in a society. We're going to talk more about that soon. And I have tried to focus the majority of my giving and also like my board service on root causes. And so the two organizations locally that I really put dollars into our parenting center that helps with foster care adoption, kinship care, just support for families who are raising grandchildren, nieces and nephews, that kind of thing, as well as parent coaching, just giving parents more skills to be um, emotionally intelligent and in their own struggles as well as their children's struggles. So that's one, uh, Beach Acres Parenting Center. And then the other is focused on incarceration, which I think is the the place that my heart is most pulled to, trying to get people out of out of jails and prisons across the country. So those are the two causes that I think most about. But I think it is can best be summarized by right here where I am and trying to get to things that I think will help prevent 
outcomes that other charities work on down the road. Yeah. Last year, I gave money to several organizations that I serve on the board of. It's just such an interesting situation because, like, we're going to talk again. We're going to talk about this in an episode next week. But, like, one of them, like, they have a lot of money. They have plenty of money. And they don't need money necessarily. You know, nonprofits always need money, but their coffers are very full. And so that sort of changed the calculus, too. And I think that's an important part. I think you can kind of sort of get into a habit of just, like, writing the check to the organization you love. And I think it's worth asking, like, do they have a lot of need right now? Is there another organization that has more need? Yeah. And what are the goals of the organization? Are those goals shifting in ways that I continue to feel like my dollars should support? And kind of what's the energy of giving dollars to an organization? There is a lot to consider. The other thing I wanted to mention in this discussion is that I'm trying to do a better job honestly, a lot because of our experience as small business owners. Um, I'm trying to do a better job not waiting until the end of the year to make a charitable gift, but to Mm -hmm. spread my giving out on a monthly, consistent basis. Because we have certainly learned that having that consistent support month after month that you can count on is vital to running an organization that, that depends on individual support. And so I'm trying to do a better job of that with my charitable giving as well. Well, thank you all so much for joining us. Um, Just a reminder that we are still booking some speaking engagements for next year as you think about what you'd like to invite into your local community. We love traveling across the country, spending time in person with people, and would be delighted to spend time with your university, your organization. So if you'd like to learn more about that, can you please send an email to our managing director, Elise, at hello at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. And could you do that as soon as possible for you? Because our calendar is filling up for 2022 and we do love doing these events and want to be able to do as many as we reasonably can. Elise will be delighted to talk with you about what we do and how we do it out on the road. We'll be back with you here next Tuesday for a conversation about guns in America. Until then, have the best weekend available to you. Pantsuit Politics is produced by Studio D Podcast Production. Elise Knapp is our managing director. Megan Hart and Maggie Pinton are our community engagement managers. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. Our show is listener-supported. Special thanks to our executive producers. Martha Brunitsky. Linda Daniel. Allie Edwards. Janice Elliott. Sarah Greenup. Julie Haller. Helen Handley. Tiffany Hassler. Emily Holliday. Katie Johnson. Katina Zuganellis-Kasling. Barry Kaufman. Molly Kors. The Creeps! Lori Ladau, Lily McClure, David McWilliams, Jared Minson, Emily Neasley, Danny Osmond, The Cousins, Tawny Peterson, Tracy Putoff, Sarah Ralph, Jeremy Sequoia, Katie Steigers, Karen True, Annika Uveline, Nick and Elisa Valelli, Amy Whited, Melinda Johnston, Ashley Thompson, Michelle Wood, Joshua Allen, Morgan McHugh, Nicole Berkless, Paula Bremer, and Tim Miller.